Hey, 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 it's me, the Kentucky Guy, and I want to thank you for listening to this episode of the Red Pill Current News Podcast. On this episode, we're going to go way back to Eisenhower, Truman, Winston Churchill, all the things that set us up to where we are today. I want you guys to pay close attention over these last few episodes on this special because it's going to show you exactly why we're in the position we are right now. But as always, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of the Red Pill Car News Podcast. Welcome to the Red Pill Current News Podcast. I'm your truth finder, the truth seeker, the Kentucky guy. Hope everybody's having a fantastic day today. And we are on 73 different audio platforms. So if you're listening to us, be sure to hit that follow or subscribe button, no matter which platform you're listening to us on. Also hit those notifications so you know every time we upload a new episode. We are on Apple iTunes, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and the list goes on. Also, for you wrestling fans, I do co-host with Donnie Cage, Against the Mat Wrestling Podcast, and we post new episodes there every Tuesday and Saturday. At, on, this, uh, on this show here, we do post two episodes a week, sometimes three. Or more. All depends on how busy of a news week it is. This episode here, folks, is going to be all about where we left off on why our country is in the shape it's in and how it all got started, going all the way back to the 1940s with Winston Churchill and FDR and so forth. And you guys are starting to see those ones that are paying attention through your emails. I can tell you're starting to see kind of how. This all fits together like a little puzzle. Now, if you ever want to be a guest on the show or you want to send me an email and ask me a question, you can always do that at Kentucky, spelled out, 99 at yahoo.com. That's Kentucky 99 at yahoo.com. And we look forward to your emails. We always answer them. Sometimes it may take a day or, you know, what have you, but we always do answer them as fast and as, uh, as we can. Also in the description below is the merch shop along with all of our social media. So be sure to check that out as well. All right. So when we left off, we were talking about Winston Churchill trying to get FDR involved in the war. And he had just recently got them, uh, got FDR involved in the war in the United States. And this is World War II with Hitler. Now, here's the thing I want you guys to recognize as I go forward is FDR always planned, on, even though he ran, he ran on his first term on not getting us into war, he always planned to get into this war. Always. Always, always, always. 
And hopefully you guys have seen that so far and you'll see more of it. So here we go. Let's get started right where we left off. So on, on Churchill's foreign affairs and his foreign policies, he was, it was seen as he was kind of soft. And that wasn't true and terrible and very costly uh, tragedy. At no point in 1943, though, did Churchill recognize his mistakes on his foreign policies. Instead, he merely poured his genius into opposing the American president. Thus, instead of abiding by the agreement he had made with FDR at Casablanca, namely that the U.S. commanders and troops would build up battlefield experience against uh, against uh, Wordmeck in North Africa and the Mediterranean, and then mount a full-on ambitious invasion of France in early 1944. Churchill began a series of deceits and maneuvers worthy of a Shakespearean villain. He traveled not once, but twice to North America in 1943 by a translunic liner. The Queen Mary, with literally hundreds of military advisors and staffers. His mission? To try to persuade the president to abandon the D-Day plan. Unsuccessful, he resorted to sabotage. Even meeting with senior U.S. senators and congressmen to persuade them not to back their own president. Yeah, I know, I know, I know FDR was conniving and bad, but this guy was just as bad. Arguing that D Day would be a disaster, while the soft underbelly of the Mediterranean would be a walkover. However, finally, in the summer of 1943, when Churchill came to Roosevelt's Hyden Park estate on his second trip to the U.S., the president lost his temper. FDR warned the British prime minister that if he continued to undermine the D-Day operations, America would shut the United Kingdom out of the Manhattan Project, Washington's top secret atom bomb program. In fact, the president was so aggravated, he insisted that the D-Day invasion would no longer be commanded by British officers, an American general would lead up the operation, one who would make sure it would be mounted in the spring of 1944. A stunned Churchill returned to Quebec, having given his word to toe the line. The Allied commitment to D-Day in the spring of 1944 was thereby saved. However, hard or not soft, the underbelly of Europe, Italy, the Asian islands, and the Balkans proved to be that fall, the D-Day invasion would nevertheless go ahead, thanks to Roosevelt's firmness. D-Day would be, as even Hitler declared, the deciding battle of World War II. It is to President Roosevelt's uh, patent military direct direction of the war as a U.S. commander-in-chief despite all that Churchill did to oppose him, that we owe the great victory of the Western allies. Ensuring the war against evil would be won, not lost. As Vice President Truman had little contact 
with the president and was asked to mostly deal with matters in the Senate. After FDR died, Truman had to find out the basic facts about the wars in Europe and Asia and the nation's secret. So even as vice president, Truman really didn't know what was going on. I mean, he was lost. Kind of like uh, Camelia Harris, right? Sound a little bit familiar there? So in the White House from 1945 to 1953, Truman made the decision to use the atomic bomb against Japan, helped rebuild post-war Europe, worked to contain communism, and led the United States into the Korean War, which we were in from 1950 to 1953. Harry Truman, this is another winner, was known to have prejudices against his community when it came to views of race. He used radical sl racial slurs, told racist jokes, opposed sit-ins and intermarriage, and called Dr. Dr. Martin Luther King a troublemaker. Campaigning for the ticket on Eisenhower's right were two prominent anti-communists. Anti Wisconsin Senator Joseph R. McCarthy and California Senator and Eisenhower's running mate, Richard M. Nixon. McCarthy had won the hearts of the conservative Republicans with his slashing attacks on 20 years of treason. And he continued through the campaign year to insist that only Republican administration could possibly find and destroy the enemy within our rampart. Eisenhower and his military anti-communist Secretary of State John Foster Dulles never flagged in developing the Cold War strategy more often associated with the later administrations. After the French colonial defeated the in Indonesia and the administration blew up the Geneva Accords, that provided for free 1956 elections and unified Vietnam paving the way to a quagmire of the 1960s and 70s, Ike was a staunch supporter of the U.S. war effort in Vietnam until his death in 1969. Ike is Truman, by the way. He approved CIA sponsorship coups. The agency was led by John Foster Dulles Brother Allen, against popular left-wing governments in Iran in 1953 and Guatemala in 1954, and the order that the initial planning for what would become the disastrous Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba in 1961 and throughout the Eisenhower administration. The official strategic doctrine of the U.S. government towards communist aggression was massive retaliation, which speaks for itself. Terrifying. Terrifying. So a lot of you thought that Reagan had a part in, in Kennedy of causing the Cold War. No, no, no. This was before those gents. Way before those gents. Eisenhower opposed discrimination, but seemed to sympathize far more with the white Southerners, Southerners whose lives would be disrupted by the end of Jim Crow 
than blacks dwelling under its boot heel. He was an incriminous skeptic of federal power who often repeated the ideological belief that laws could not shape the culture despite pursuing laws that would extend a bit most modestly compared to Johnson era efforts. Federal authority to protect Americans, civil rights, Eisenhower would say, you cannot change people's hearts merely by laws. Uh-huh. Before the Brown versus Board of Education decision was reached, Eisenhower invited Chief Justice Earl Warner to dinner at the White House. Eisenhower, Warren would later recall, told him that white Southerns are not bad people. All they are concerned about is to see that their sweet little girls are now required to sit in school alongside some big overgrown uh, black people. I'm not going <laughs> to. I'm not going to say the word that's in this article. Anywho, Eisenhower's shared share of the black vote did rise from a municipal 24% in 1952 when he had a lot of the white surrogate support to 39% in 1956. But while that seems very high, now his more conservative vice president, Richard Nixon, won 32% in 1960 against the man now regarded as a civil rights icon, John F. Kennedy. Funny when you go back in history a little bit and you kind of see how things really were. And these, uh, you know, why, I don't know, why, why aren't our school systems teaching the real facts is what I don't understand. So his major accomplishment was the initiation of the interstate highway system. But his favorite advisor was, by most counts, the Secretary of Treasury, George Humphrey, a former steel magnate who was a financial advocate for physical discipline. It was no accident that Eisenhower's administration experienced two, two economic recessions during his term. As for his leadership of the Republican Party, Ike's reputed ideology, cynicism was limited. He was uh, infuriated in 1960 when Nixon, his successor, agreed to a series of platform demands made by New York's genuinely liberal governor, Nelson Rockefeller. Uh -huh, Rockefeller, don't forget these names. And he never went public with misgivings about Goldwater's 1964 takeover of the GOP, loyally supporting the nominee. Indeed, his appearance at the 1964 Republican convention is most remembered for his utterance, which wouldn't be out of place in a speech by the current president. My friends, we are Republicans. If there's any final word in the entire field of partisan politics, I have not heard it. So let us particularly scorn the diversion efforts of those outside our family, including sensation-seeking communists, uh, columnists, and commentators, because, my friends, I assure you that these are people who couldn't care less about the good of our party. Now, his average job approval rating from the Gallup over the eight years was 65%. 
That's the highest since FDR, by the way, during those times. But his popularity was personal and Pablo owned a lot due to the hero's war record. His party definitely did not benefit. Republicans lost both houses of Congress during Ike's first term, midterm election in 1954, and not recovering the Senate until 1980 or the House until 1994. And during the course of his presidency, the GOP lost more net state legislative seats than his than has either party since Herbert Hoover. Wow. That's a lot. While he warned about military industrial complex, he was less restrained when it came to covert interventions, some which reverberate today. Today, today, today. On January 17, 1961, at the end of his second term of office, President Dwight Eisenhower tried to pull back the reins on U.S. military intervention in other countries with his warning about the military-industrial complex, but he did not apply the same restraint to the covert CIA interventions in other countries, covert interventions that he worked very hard to protect and keep a secret from the U.S. Congress and the public. Huh? You guys starting to see here? See how the puzzle comes together? Yeah. Like I said, the CIA, FBI, the three letter agencies, they're not all bad. Not all the people, I'm, I would never say that. But the higher ups, eh, they've been corrupt a long time. As far back as when? Uh, let's see. 1956, Senator Mike Mansfield proposed that the CIA would keep Congress informed of its activities. Eisenhower knew that the CIA would be in big trouble if Congress learned its deepest secrets. So he decreed that Mansfield's bill would be passed over my dead body. According to the journalist and a CIA expert, Stephen Kinzer, Eisenhower then pressed Senate leaders to do whatever necessary to ensure that it did not pass. And, well, Mr. Mansfield bill never seen the light of day. It never passed. During the initial stages of the Cold War, the Western nations, those aligned with the United States, confronted the Eastern Bloc, those aligned with the USSR. The mostly non-aligned nations of what came to be known as the Third World were left pretty much alone as long as they kept the communists sufficiently in check, a tolerance that was known as the Jarka Accusium after its Indonesia paradigm. In 1953, that policy changed. Washington decided that merely keeping communists in check was no longer a credential for tolerance. Third world countries had to specifically align with the United States. In the Jakarta method, Vincent Blevins explained that the new rule was that neutral governments were potential enemies, and Washington could decide if and when an independent third world nation was insignificantly anti-communist. With that, the age of the CIA coup began. 
it was Nisen, it was Eisenhower alike who made that decision. We're almost out of time, but let's go on just a little bit, a little bit further into this. The first country to be tried and condemned under the Eisenhower doctrine was Iran. Oh boy, do we not hear that name a lot these days as well? Kind of makes you want to say, hmm. A decision who uh Vibrations are still being felt this very day. But Iran's first democratically elected prime minister, Mohammad Mashiz, did not fall because he was communist. While British and American officials publicly played up the communist threat, according to the Ebert Abraham, a leading expert in 1953, the coup, privately, they knew better. The American State Department and the British Foreign Office agreed that there was no element of Russian incitement and dictation that the Iran should not be seen primarily as a part of the immediate short-term Cold War problem. The CIA assessed that Muscat's government has the capability to take effective, reprehensive action to check. Tuda, the Communist Party, agitates that Tuda would not able to gain control, would not be able to gain control of the government. The problem in Iran was not communism. It was neutralism and neutralism. In 1951, Muscad was carried into power on a wave of, of, of nationalism that had, that had made up its mind to rescue Iran's oil from the Britain so that the people of Iran and not the stockholders of the British-owned Aglaror Iranian Oil Company could benefit from its profits. Muscat immediately moved to nationalize Iran's oil, and in April of 1951, the Iranian parliament approved the nationalization bill. Muscat was elected prime minister and signed the bill into law the following month. This was too much. Too much. It always comes to power and money, guys. Always. Still to this very day. That was too much for the British. They clamped a crushing embargo on Iran, sent warships to enforce it, not enough to pressure the people of Iran to overthrow the popular mosquito. The State Department placed his support at a 95 to 98%. The British tried instead, but they failed. And when mosquito responded by shuttering the British embassy, in Tehran and expelling its diplomats, Britain's spies were flushed out with them. England had no one left in Iran to overthrow Muscat. So they looked to America. Through President Truman had considered ousting, though, though President Truman had considered ousting Muscat, according to the Abrahamian, it didn't ultimately happen until Eisenhower's administration. Aha! Yep. On July 11, 1953, Eisenhower gave presidential approval for Operation Ajax, the very first CIA coup, and Moscow was removed from power. The coup would start a historical tidal wave that led to the suffering of the people of Iran under dictatorship of the Shuha, the 1979 Iranian Revolution, and the American embassy hostage taking before crashing on the shores of today and current standoff over the 2015 
GP, GCPOA nuclear agreement. Iran is not a nuclear threat. Do not believe CNN. Do not believe MSN. I'm trying to show you guys how far back this goes. Our country, our leaders have got us to where we're at today. A CIA coup in other countries? Who do we think we are? Really? Who do we think we are? We are not the world police. We're not. And that's just the beginning, folks. Oh, yeah. That's just the beginning. But that is all the time I do have for today. Thank you guys so much. We'll get into the Bay of Pigs. We got a lot to talk about still. But thank you guys so much for listening to the Red Pill Current News Podcast. I'm your humble host, the Kentucky guy. And as always, God bless and God bless America. Thank you. (laughs) 